You're listening to Extra Textual. This is a show where we talk about an idea, concept, theme, trend, and relate it to some kind of media like film, TV, video games, books, music, and hopefully discover something about ourselves or our culture along the way. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the show. This is Extra Textual. I'm Eli Steenlidge, and with me here is... Jeremy Holliday. We are happy to welcome back our special guest, Professor Colin Burnett. Uh, how are you doing tonight? Doing very well. Happy to be back. Yeah, yeah. And I did want to mention, we really enjoy it when you come on. And since you've been on, we've had a few other guests, and uh, I know at least a few of them have mentioned, you know, like, we invited somebody to come on, and they'd be like, uh, yeah, I can do it, but you know I'm no Professor Burnett. <laughs> And so uh, I think you are setting a very high standard that we've uh, we've been hearing about. So um, let's raise the bar even more. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So we're expecting big things tonight, Colin. OK. Yeah. Not any pressure. No pressure. Um, so on this episode, we are talking about Solo, a Star Wars story, the new Han Solo movie. And it's kind of good that we get a little bit of time in between when it was released and um, talking about it because we get to kind of see like the general reaction from the public and critics and things like that. And this definitely didn't get bad um, reviews from critics by any means, but on the lower end of the recent Disney Star Wars films. But we've now seen that it's really dropped off in box office and there's articles about how this is like a total failure for Disney and they have to uh Disney even released a statement that they're sort of reevaluating some of the Star Wars films that they'll be making in the future and um from talking briefly beforehand before recording I think we're all a little bit stunned by that and confused um so I think we could maybe start there a little bit uh and how we all kind of felt about it um just generally, but I think mostly we, I would say I was quite positive on it. Um, how did you guys feel? Um, I, I was really positive on it too. I mean, I know, um, Eli, you tend to be, uh, a subtle man. Subtle. Yes. Um, and you, you saw it with your kids probably, uh, three or four days before I saw it with mine. Yeah. And you said, you know, you tempered yourself and <laughs> said, I think you're going to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I, uh, I had sort of a rip roaring good time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I uh, there's the title I think is really good for me. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. like the definitive Han Solo story. Yeah, it's a Star Wars story. Recognizing mm-hmm. that there, it's a there's variant authorship. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a particular take yeah. on a story. Um, and I guess I like. I mean, like they get you know they he gets off Corellia. He gets into the stuff with Chewie. He speaks Wookie. I was like, I can't. I, like I'm, 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 I'm hooked. I'm like I, I will, I will do it. Wait, that was take, a great moment. Take yeah. me wherever you want, and they take me to a train heist. Yeah, I was like, of course you have a train job, and and like I just remember sitting there. Um, I think it's the first time that uh, I don't remember her name, but uh, Beckett's uh, girlfriend, other you know pirate, wife, is like yeah. under fire, mm-hmm. and, and, and she makes this sort of bold move to turn around and shoot the droids to sort of draw them off, and I'm like, oh, she's gonna get killed. I was like. <laughs> I am absolutely one hundred percent enthralled mm-hmm. with everything that's happening here, mm-hmm. um, and from that point on, I was just—I had—I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, 
and and the other the other high point for me is Phoebe Waller Bridge who plays L three. I mean, I loved her show Fleabag. I, mm-hmm. I like the new show she's working on from what I've read about it. Um, you know, I mean, she was great. Yeah, and um, a, a lot of the, you know, the, there's a little bit like it's a little more, a little slightly naughtier. Um, in the Star Wars palette, there's a like a little bit of sexual tension there, some yeah. kissing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not like mom kissing dad kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and I just think it is is the perfect amount of that kind of stuff. Um, and I, you know, it, it was able to um, uh, stay true, I think, to the Star Wars idea. Um, it felt it felt a lot like um, some of um, the best, uh, like Dave Fellini's writing in the Clone Wars, mm-hmm. um, where we really grounded in a place. We have a balance of action and talking about it. Yeah. Um, we have we're, we're cyclically going through kinds of conflicts and coming out differently at the end of those conflicts. Um, you know, and I was just like, well, I mean, Lawrence Kasdan and his son uh, really wrote something that was great, and Ron Howard, you know, in the end, yeah. um, put together a pretty solid film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, and it was different than I had expected. Um, I don't know, some some manner of it, maybe it it took itself like ninety five percent serious, mm-hmm. and that was like just the right amount. Just the right amount. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Colin? Uh, I'm in agreement with both of you. I think that Ron Howard and company pretty much nailed it with this movie. That's not to say that I couldn't uh, find holes in things, and I assume we'll get to that eventually, but the movie is just a blast. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I am, you know, I went on the opening night, and then I went again a few days ago. Yeah. Uh, Sadly, a few days ago, the audience, there wasn't, wasn't that many people there. It's it, it's it's peculiar to me that it, it that a movie that's this fun and especially in comparison to everything else that's out in the market from Deadpool two to Infinity War, uh, this holds up quite nicely. The only well, I won't get into what I think didn't quite work. I thought, for instance, uh, just to start at the beginning, why not start there? Mm-hmm. The, the first act worked very nicely. Um, before we started recording here, we were talking about the variety review of the movie, which uh, let the first act have it, really, uh, sort of hammered it, saying it was clunky, the writing didn't quite work, it's a bit of a slog to get through. Uh, I didn't think that at all. I thought the movie hit the ground running. They knew what they wanted, how they wanted to set things up. In fact, I think it's sort of an ideal piece of action adventure exposition and what are we talking about when we're talking about star wars movies we're talking about action adventure and i think some fans some fans tend to forget this that this is not just the crafting of a myth they just they what the franchise needs to deliver on are just good movies so now obviously your listeners right now are hearing all of us in this massive embrace <laughs> right. movie, and then they're wondering why the movie therefore didn't is not doing so well, and I guess we'll get to that too. Let me just add a few more things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obvious to me that the writers for Star Wars are tasked these days with world building, to use that word. Yeah, right. I thought the world building is really strong in this movie, from the new planets that are dark and dusty and grimy. Mm-hmm. Also in terms of how... The Empire works. In the first act, you get this portrait of the Empire as this colonial force, which I thought worked quite nicely, and, and, and it was highly personal with Solo uh, and Kira. But also in terms of how that the, the Empire, we're, we're in a world here where be, this story is being set near the fringes of 
or the empire's power or beyond mm. its fringes. So you get these things like the syndicates and Crimson Dawn and the Cloud Riders, and they're all strategically kept, more or less, at least as far as the power struggle is concerned among them, in the background, which mm. makes you just curious to hear more about them. And I think that that's pretty good world building. Loved all of the new CG characters from Lady Proxima to L3, uh, to Rio even. Some people are critical of uh, Rio. <laughs> Rio is a pretty solid character. And let me just end my praise here, at least the opening volley, uh, with this. Yeah. I think, in fact, this movie has some great iconic scenes, even, that mm -hmm. some Star Wars fans are going to come to realize are iconic. What else do you want from a Star Wars movie than that Kessel Run scene? That is just a, an extraordinary piece of, of action-adventure filmmaking from top to bottom, uh, and even is kind of really gorgeous to look at at moments. That mm -hmm. silhouette shot of the Star Destroyer, yeah. just fabulous. I mean, that's the one of the money shots of the movie, to be sure. Mm -hmm. Or you see that shot where the screen is completely dark as the Millennium Falcon is heading off into the Maelstrom, and you just see it as a sliver of light at this tiny sliver of light at the center of the screen. So, you know, there's it's it's a rollicking good time, as Jeremy was saying before, but it's also sort of well put together in many ways. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's really getting the credit it's due for the look of this film. I think what a lot of people aren't talking about is the cinematographer, Bradford Young, is kind of like a consistent part of the production behind it, um, was with the original directors, Lord and Miller, and then also with Ron Howard. And I think he does, like you said, creates this really lived-in world that you believe. Um the the set and tone is is kind of moody there's like a haziness to a lot of like um the different shots that gives it kind of this real feel to it um this tactileness and i think yeah one thing that kind of sold me and got me excited about the film was that shot you're talking about of the star destroyer that was in the trailer and it was just like these swirling sort of clouds coming through like this fog and i was like that's not what I expected in the Han Solo movie. That's pretty cool. And then that scene just kind of like grows from there. And I think even like small touches, I noticed a couple times they really focused in like a, a really close up shot of um, like Han Solo's eyes, like his face. Like when, amazing. Yeah, yeah. When he's like gets in the cockpit and he, you know, he gets to do the thing that he's wanted to do you really get close in and intimate with him in that moment. And you kind of feel it, like the excitement, the adrenaline, and um, the kind of passion he has for that moment to be able to do that. This is what sort of drives him to be the person we see later, you know, that sort of excitement. And, and I think some of the, well, we can talk about characterization, but, you know, I heard, you know, with the Lando character, and talking about that character and they were saying how they kind of wanted him to feel like not the fully formed version of Lando, you know, like he's trying out his sort of persona and his swagger and style, like his style is a little over the top, but he's like young and trying to figure those things out. And I kind of felt the same way about Han. I don't know that uh, I totally believe it. I think I was talking to Jeremy before he went and I said, you know, don't necessarily think of it as like he's trying to be the Harrison Ford Han Solo. Like, he is just a Han Solo, sort of. Or he's just, like, an adventure-type character that we can follow, not trying to be the same thing. So I think if you look at it in that light, 
it's very similar. And Colin, is it true that you read um, some of the new comics or have read some of those? Yes, I have. Yeah. I mean, here and there, I cherry pick. Uh, yeah, me too. So, yeah. I mean, I, I read the Han Solo comic that came out, when was it, 2016 or 15? Probably, yeah. Um, somewhere around there. So mm-hmm. it's about it's a five-issue arc, and I just read it read in the trade. Yeah. And it's pretty interesting. It's set between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. So mm-hmm. you sort of fill in the gaps there. Yeah. Um, so there's not, there are not real, uh, there are not that many connections here mm-hmm. um, with, with Solo, except I would say this, one crucial thing, which is in that comic, they elected pretty much, if memory serves, to have no reference to the Jedi or the Sith or anything mm. of the sort. Yeah. It was all left outside of this world of Han Solo and his story uh, sandwiched in between the two first major mm-hmm. They elected to do the same thing here. Yeah. And maybe we can come back to it. I think that that was a bit of a mistake, mm. not because it doesn't work in the final movie, but because it makes the movie difficult to market. Oh, and I think sure. that that's a problem. Can I just circle back for a moment? Yeah. I mean, I because let's get into characters eventually. But uh, if we clear ground in terms of the look, mm-hmm. uh, the we'll soon we'll find out over time as the dust settles about why people either didn't think they would like the movie or walking out didn't like it. Mm-hmm. People are not very good for whatever reason at articulating their sense of the look of movies. Uh, it's right. just one of the things we go for in a, a night's entertainment and that's understandable. Mm-hmm. But there is some reporting out there how, you know, some fans are even encouraging the cinematographer to sue, uh, particularly AMC for mm-hmm. the, the dim bulbs and all these things that are happening in our current movie theaters. Mm. So I don't know about you. I saw it twice at an AMC and, and we can talk about the technology or whatever, but I guess no need to get into the weeds, but they they do have attachments that render the image much dimmer and darker than it ought to be. Mm. This is an extremely dark palette movie with, with very fine gradations of blacks even. And it, it's a shame, I feel, quite honestly, that I haven't quite seen this movie, um, mm. even though I saw it twice in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like they were, I mean, franchises, this is my basic way of thinking about these things. Franchises play off each other. Mm-hmm. Even a franchise is set aesthetically as Star Wars. I think that their their cinematographer here was almost playing off of a kind of Roger Deakins aesthetic with a lot of you know silhouetted characters they almost seem like shadows in the foreground and then the background that's the major source of illumination so if you think of movies like blade runner 2049 that's the look Mm -hmm. but went to you know deacons will put a lot of bright light in the background and or or deep saturated colors to bring out a contrast with the silhouetted figures in the foreground in this case they elected to go for darkness all the way through from foreground to background which means to get a f- sense of the feel of this movie and of this world, we needed to see some good projection. And I'm honest, honestly, I don't think we're getting it. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I um, got to go, my dad was in town. And so I was excited to take my son and have three generations of our family go see a Star Wars film. 
But before we had been going, uh, my dad had been telling me how he had to have eye surgery in the next couple weeks coming up, and that he said his vision is a little bit cloudy sometimes, and so we were kind of going in, and he was like, I hope this movie is not too dim or, like, dark. And in the middle of it, and I was like, yep, this is pretty dim. Like, some of these scenes is even, like, kind of hazy for me, and I and I think I could understand the style, and like you said... Um, Maybe we're not getting the best projection, but I think it was intentional. It kind of had use of like natural lighting in some of those scenes coming in to kind of fill things. Uh, and I liked it. And even like the scene we get of the first card game, Sabak, uh, between Han and Lando, it's really cool seeing that the, that group of aliens just sort of pushing in kind of on the card game. Yeah, and almost and, coming out of, materializing out of darkness. Right, like you, it, it's a great feel for like you can't quite see what's beyond, but you feel like there's more in those shadows and things happening. Absolutely. Um, which kind of gave it this this classic. And that's what I want to get like out of those Star Wars movies is say like, you know, I know there's other things going on deep in these corners in this darkness, and um, it just makes it makes it feel uh, authentic and that world building again. Yeah, I mean, and really I think like if it. you contrast like the uh, Maz Kanat's mm-hmm. castle mm-hmm. in um, Force Awakens. The Force Awakens with wherever Lando is, mm-hmm. um, the Lando the version of it the Lando's in is far more interesting because at least to my eye mm-hmm. because there's so much mystery like it it, yeah. it fades to dark mystery on the sides right. whereas like the clearly illuminated very well put together mm-hmm. aliens that we see in Maz Kanats doesn't have the same sort of you know vignette style darker on the edges bit that just engenders you know mystery and look use JJ Abrams of being able to create that sense of mystery it's very glossy his look so you yeah. know i think what we got there sorry to interrupt yeah, yeah. No, you're fine. And then I think even, is it Dryden Voss, the yeah. sort of crime boss? Um, yes. His sort of fancy Art Nouveau ship, which was pretty cool. But when we first go into that, we have like the sort of lounge music number. And I was like starting to think like this could be bad. This could be real silly. Like when they kind of have like live music happening in Star Wars. Um, but I ended up really enjoying that set and that atmosphere and even compared to The Last Jedi, which I, I like as a film really well overall, but the casino scenes, I felt like this uh, crime boss's sort of ship had more mystery again than that sort of casino yeah. with all these crazy aliens and stuff. And in the new um, solo film, I had sort of even like trouble kind of like keeping track of those, like, oh, what's going on over in that corner? What's that? What's that? And I, I'm enjoying uh, the ability to go back and watch it again sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the the... I mean, to like push up my nerd glasses. Yeah. Um, the um, the the scene in Dreadvoss's ship that mm-hmm. that it, it, it reminded me a lot of the first time you go into the cantina in um, Knights of the Old Republic. Mm. It has this sort of sort of uh, it's organized into I think like three or four different sort of circular rooms. Mm. And you need to go through them. You can also learn to play sabak there and improve your sabak deck. Yeah. Um, but it, it it's it. it the like the circular organization or the apparently circular organization of Dryden Voss mm. thing reminds me of that. Yeah. Um, in the way that it's it's open but it also feels a little claustrophobic mm-hmm. because it closes around. Um, there there is a couple like um, a, a couple fanboy things that mm-hmm. I like when I watched the film. So first of all, just in terms of cinematography, there is a shot um, when they are when they have the coaxium and they're retreating to the Millennium Falcon. Uh-huh. I think it's it's either. A Han or Lando. We have a sh- we have a shot 
straight on of them when they're outside being shot at and it follows them all the way inside the mm, ship yeah and, and it holds on them when we get to see a few blaster flashes mm-hmm. for a little bit and it was like a good four to five seconds longer than i think it um someone else would have made it yeah and it and i was just i was just utterly enthralled i was like that i mean <laughs> I do remember that moment too, and yeah. i also think like that must have taken forever to go from those two different light situations and i was like that's and and it just it adds such a um it reminds it it has the same effect on me as that it's a shot in the children of men when he's running away from the bus and blood gets splattered on the camera mm. it just like totally locks me in to this action adventure mm. where like i am right in that space yeah. um cuz it's not like he jumps in the ship and the ship turns off we follow him into that space as he like goes from the dangerous outside space to the kind mm-hmm. of safe inside space mm mm-hmm. And also, in terms of, well, the, like two fanboy characterization things, one of which is, as I mentioned to, to Colin on the internet earlier, like at the end of the film, we have Han shooting first. Like, yep. definitively. Yep. Um, and I think in, in almost like a better, better characterization of that element of his character than in um, A New Hope. Mm-hmm. The other one is like, and I, I don't know if they, I, I assume this is intentional. So like uh, when they plug L3 in into the, Millennium Falcon at the end. Mm-hmm. It's like key. It's not clear that she ever comes out of it because if we, if you remember, and this was pointed out by someone I read online, like when C three PO first talks to the Millennium Falcon, mm-hmm. he he's like he's like kind of taken aback and says that she speak says that it speaks in a strange accent. Huh. Um, you know, like oh, your your ship has the most extraordinary dialect. Huh. Um, which I, I was like, if they back, it was I thought it was a great element of backfill. You know, because mm-hmm. I mean, you know, what they're doing in all these films is you know is, is you know that like the the stuff in the original films isn't ever going to change, right? Because um, Lucas won't get his hands on it again. <laughs> um, and so there's a way of there's these you know in some sense like Rogue One is comes entirely from the saddened line from Mon Mothma that many Bothans died, bringing this information. And right. it's interesting to see how um, you know we got the, the Castle Run and Twelve Parsecs. We got mm-hmm. this th- somewhat throwaway line in the mm-hmm. original about his ship having a strange dialect. I mean, like yeah. is that L three in there? I mean, it works. I don't know. There was. There was so much attention to some of those um, minor details or unrounded off corners mm-hmm. in the original films that I was just, you know, I already had a great movie. Yeah. And then I was delighting in all these ways in which this sort of neatly fit mm-hmm. um, underneath the, the other film story. Yeah, I mean, there was nice little surprises like adding L3 to the computer system. I've heard a lot of negative things about that, that she certainly led this droid... Um, revolt uprising um for freedom and then she gets enslaved into the millennium falcon forever apparently um but i don't i'm not even sure that it's clear that she is sentient in the like computer of the millennium falcon or if it's like data i think you could take that different ways well, whether the, it was just her information the millennium falcon has always seemed i mean i can't can't pull out certain details here but i'm, I'm now willing to go back always seemed a little bit moody yeah, and every time, every time you get a sense of a personality, I love it that we now know that mm-hmm. her entity is there, or her yeah. mind is there, or whatever, her katra, whatever you want to call it. But in any case, yeah, I thought I thought that that was that was an interesting move. It adds just a new layer to what we already know. Hope springs eternal that uh, Disney will one day deem the prequels non-canon and just redo. <laughs> right. Uh, oh. Yeah. But there's so much. But to to go back. To, to the initial point here, there's so mm-hmm. much intellectual clutter online about this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I did, I did hear complaints about what happened to L3. Um, 
I think we should eventually talk about this mini rebellion, which was totally a fast, like just an interesting moment, but it was totally exhilarating too. Yep. And yeah. it, it used humor to make you feel exhilarated. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the voice talent just, just wrote it. It seemed preposterous because she was <laughs> meeting this little, <laughs> this little robot stomping the controllers as a massive revolution. Um, it was kind of wide eyed and joyful. And I thought, therefore worked in the Star Wars world. Some people are complaining that ultimately, you know, we had a, a pretty interesting female character and we ended up killing her off. And then she, as you said, ends up being imprisoned or at the service of Han Solo for the remainder of her existence. Mm -hmm. um, sure, I mean, I guess you could, you could read it that way. But while she, she has quite a bit of screen time and while she's there, that character pretty much owns it. Yeah. Um, to stand back a little further about this point, I don't know if we need to get into it now, but there, there are some people who are saying that one of the reasons why this movie is not terribly successful is, is that it's basically about a white guy with a gun. Hmm. This, is a, this is a line that, was, that I've read on my social media feeds, hmm. um, that this is, what, this is why it didn't seem terribly interesting. Now, I think it dovetails with this point about L3. If people... People are either either who say that either haven't seen the movie or just when they have just failed to remove their blinders. Hmm. The movie is called Solo. It is about a male character with a gun in a very banal way. Mm -hmm. But Disney is now writing these movies, and maybe this we can use this to tee off a discussion of the the, the many characters here and go through them one by one. But Disney is using these movies basically to write ensemble stories. True. The idea, the idea of the individual hero in these movies is really lost now. Mm -hmm. um, not that Star Wars ever, ever did offer that entirely, but if you see the trailers to, for instance, the upcoming movie uh, with Denzel Washington, The Equalizer Two, there's no question here that there's just this is about this one guy, and yeah. he's going to be virtually every scene, every important scene anyway. That's not the way uh, Disney is writing. Marvel movies or writing uh, these Star Wars Star movies. Wars. Yeah. There are so many strong women characters, and yes, they each have different trajectories. So to say that this is just a movie about a white guy with a gun, I think is really uh, missing the point. Yeah, and I do, um, I, uh, I mean, I don't entirely feel qualified to make this point, but um, I think um, one of the things I have liked always about the Star Wars film since I was a kid is the way in which the characters are archetypes. Like Luke is a particular kind of person which resonates, you know, in some sense cross culturally. You know, you know, Darth Vader is the father. There's all sorts of, you know, there's like the the, the learned folks. You know, and and you know, all that stuff was intentional and very well talked about. Um, and I think that uh, like when I watched Rogue One, I, I I really liked some of the characters, and I liked that it was a story of a, a, a small group of two or three groups of people doing a thing. Um, the problem was when it's done, like, I don't really remember any of their names or their personalities except the droid and, mm -hmm. you know, the guy with the bow, you know, and like, yeah. and there's a whole bunch of our heroes who are dressed the same and look the same and have kind of the same personality almost. And it, it doesn't, that part never worked for me. But in this film, if it's sort of like a, the next attempt at it, um, people look different. They speak mm. differently. They have different... They have very clearly, from the moment they're on screen, they're, they have some kind of minor conflict with someone or another. Like when Beckett and... I can't remember his love... Like in his... 
girlfriend person are on. Like, I think oh. the, the, the first line or two they say is in conflict with each other. So I know very clearly where Beckett is. I know very clearly where she is. Mm-hmm. I know where Rio stands, you know, and like yeah. everyone very clearly stakes out some space for themselves um, that's unique. So that I, you know, even in a situation when they're like planning the train heist, um, I have a sense of what all of their interests are. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and, and they feel from the moment they speak together like individual people. It's something that I, I don't want to complain at length about Infinity War, but like if they, those superheroes didn't look different or have different powers, they could essentially all be played by the same person. It's like yeah. giant huddle of heroes over here, giant huddle of heroes here, and oh, look, we have Huddle of Heroes 3. Um, and so I, I think that you know, I mean, because even if you look at, like, A New Hope, to say that's Luke's story is shallow, mm-hmm. right? It, it does begin with him. Mm-hmm. Like, we start with this young man, yeah. um, ultimately after we get the self-rescuing princess. But uh, it's a story of a small group of people. And I think that in watching Solo, partially because it captures the same kind of on-the-fringes aesthetic as you talked about, Colin, which was what I loved about The Clone Wars, and, and, it, and it allows this space for different kinds of people, and also because they're all unique, like... Even mm-hmm. even like the two captains of the Marauder folks, you know, one person we had, you know, her mother, we mm-hmm. never see her face, right. but she has a clear goal, personality, perspective, as does her daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can come away from the movie, and the the characters don't blend together. They all seem to have their own unique interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the notes I had written down to talk about was how. Uh, and we can get into Han more and how uh, the actor does with the role. But I think he, he would be, I would say he's one of the less interesting characters in this film. But they do a good job of surrounding him with interest, very interesting characters that he sort of has to deal with and bounce off of. And I think that adds a lot. And that was a very smart way to handle it. Um, I mean, Beckett is really good, played by uh, Woody Harrelson. Uh, I think it was a big... Uh, it was a good sign that, you know, um, Tandy Newton's character, his sort of love interest, like, I was really disappointed that she died so quickly. Yeah. Because um, I'd like to see her in other adventures. Yeah. I think she was a really fun character. And then Rio. Um, but they did a really nice job of having quiet moments before those sort of action scenes that we did care about them very quickly. And that's, I think that's very rare these days um, to be able to do that. And then just going forward... Uh, um, Kira is okay. She's interesting. She has layers to her. Um, but even, I think one of my favorite characters in this, which I was surprised by, is Chewbacca. Um, I think this was maybe the film I've seen the most from him. And he really expressed a lot. I mean, I think he was vital to a lot of the scenes. Um, and well, we to, got... put simply, to put it simply, just interject for a second, yeah. Chewbacca actually is a character in this movie. Right. I mean, right. usually he's just a flat sort of figure and there to squawk from time to time mm-hmm. and comic relief or intervene in the action, And but he's a, he's a plot device. Right. Uh, not so here. He's a character. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we get um, some things that drive him and uh, um, some of his own um, Wookiee people that he needs to save and needs to deal with. So we get... Uh, motivation between uh, behind what he's trying to do, I think, as well. Uh, but yeah, I was I would say I know a lot of people are big fans of Rogue One, but I was much more attached to these characters than the characters in Rogue yeah. One. Even though we were supposed to see this tragedy in the end of all these characters, but I really enjoyed these more. Yeah. 
I, if, so both of you have taken shots uh, at Dead Rogue One. I'll have to defend it. I, I just think it's a different movie. I agree with you. The first hour of Rogue One, they don't quite have the same success as the Kasdans do here mm-hmm. in giving the characters little moments, uh, little humanizing moments. They also didn't have the same actors, I think, working yeah. in the, that, that were able to figure out how to imbue these characters with a little bit of humanity that yeah. you could hang on to and emotional resonance and depth to the extent that they could in the, sh- the short scenes that they had. I agree that all of that's more so in Solo than in Rogue One, but you know, this is not a very popular or fashionable way to look at movies, but um, all of the characters in Rogue One, they were just there at the service of that extraordinary last act which was, it, yeah. it, it, this is a story not of characters, but of an action, of a gesture. Mm, that's true. And, I, and so I thought, it, I thought it was just a different thing, to be sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, you know, uh, I'm a, you know, I think Rogue One, maybe I, I am an outlier with this, is the second best thing Star Wars has ever done. But so I don't quite um, rate Solo on that level, but I see yeah. exactly where you're coming from. If I could uh, circle back to mm-hmm. Kira. Um, I think, from my perspective, Kira is the most interesting character in this movie. Uh, so I, I'll have to uh, part ways with you there. Yeah. I think she is so crucial to this movie, not only because of the way Han is written as kind of um, naive mm-hmm. and really invested in, in, in simple and charming ways in love and affection and in... Um, helping people and saving people and making things happen. He is, he is a wide eyed Luke type um, in this movie. And I think a lot of people weren't ready to see that, Mm. but she helps him. That character does Kira does help him develop layers in certain ways. So I think she has a role there and is important for it. I'll just leave that point aside though, and get to this. The really interesting part of the movie, it seems to me in terms of character, in terms of characterization is, we don't quite know for the longest time what she's up to. And in the end, all of these characters are, are kind of, they're, they're raised in these outskirts of the galaxy around crime and filth. They're indentured and they take whatever opportunity they can. And she above all epitomizes this. Although she is hiding something the whole way, and it seems, I was actually worried at certain points that they were going to go in the direction of presenting her as a sex slave, Mm. um, uh, Dryden Voss's sex Mm. slave, to be honest. She had that mark on her. Eventually, it becomes clarified what that is. But in the end, it's not that at all. She's really invested in ascending Mm -hmm. uh, in Crimson Dawn. She wants to get to a position of power. And I think that that's the interesting, one of the interesting stories in this movie. Her, that shot of her, the parting shot of her, it's a close-up shot as she's looking down at Han. He's standing on the shoreline, the rocky shoreline. Yeah. She's looking out from the yacht as it drives, drives away. Beautifully lit, but also beautifully performed by the actress. Um, so I think in many ways, there, there, are, there are layers to this character. It's one of the things that, it makes me irritated to hear some Star Wars fans, Lifetime fans, saying that this is the first skippable Star Wars movie because not much happens in it. Yeah. Since we have this character, a very strong female character, there are a lot of questions about her now that push forward. 
And I think she's pretty interesting, obviously. Yeah, I mean, one of the just major sad things is that they do leave this film open to another story. And I think after this, and kind of why I brought up the comics too, is uh, what I think they've been doing in there is presenting really fun, um, rollicking adventures where you get to see them bouncing between different worlds and, you know, these small little, like... um, moments and adventures they get into and meeting new new interesting characters and that's really what this film captured for me and i think that's what draws me to star wars originally um even even beyond sort of this broader good versus evil story that we get with the jedis and the sith and stuff but it's it's that that i really like seeing and uh, this handled it in a very fun, classic way. So I'm, I'm disappointed that we kind of won't get to explore just like that straightforward sense of this. And I, in some ways, this is probably the smallest stakes that we've ever seen in a Star Wars film, um, like what they're going for, uh, their, their sort of goals. And I think I enjoyed that sort of the, the underworld of the Star Wars universe and getting to see this. So. Uh, it'd be fun to kind of see these characters like Kira continue to explore that sort of rise, even though we get the tie-in to Darth Maul and things like that. Um, I think overall, uh, her performance for me was a little bit uh, mixed. I think some moments she's really good, sometimes she doesn't pull off that character. I mean, like, I could always see what they're trying to do, sort of the mystery of what her motivation is and what side she's on, and I don't think she always pulled it off for me, but... Um, I was still intrigued enough to go with it. I totally agree with you that what drew me to this movie, I think I said it to you when we talked about, when we last we spoke and we spoke mm-hmm. about The Last Jedi, I think I mentioned, may have mentioned there, that the, there's a, I'm sort of experiencing Skywalker fatigue. If only, <laughs> if only we could get away from the family. And yeah. there I think we did share our admiration for Rebels and for uh, Clone Wars, I think, at that mm-hmm. point, the animated series, yeah. for that reason, because you mm-hmm. could explore beyond the central narrative, if you mm-hmm. like. Um, I think that I really I really did enjoy that aspect of this movie, that we, were t- we, w- we got away from it. I do think, though, as a result, this movie on some level became difficult to market. Yeah. The, they they re- had written themselves into a corner with this, so I'm not saying that, I mean, I, I am saying that I enjoyed it. Uh, and if we, if this had done gangbusters at the box office, we wouldn't even be talking about this. Mm-hmm. But it's now, hindsight being 2020, they probably should have written it slightly differently. And maybe even, here's a suggestion, maybe they even they shouldn't have called it Solo. Hmm. Maybe they should have called it something else that suggests that this was um, hooking into ongoing stories the larger story yeah but maybe i'm getting ahead of ourselves here if we want to keep skipping around with characters well um, i do want to say well there's a this is a, a tiny bit aside but it seems the most relevant point to bring it up i was just reading today that um uh the character who plays plays rose tycho um kelly murray tran yeah um yeah. like left uh twitter yeah um and, you know, it's speculated that part of the reason she did was because of, like, um, toxic fan base. Um, and uh, and I hadn't done a great deal of, like, internet research, because I'm kind of done with the internet, uh, <laughs> about 
like negative fan reactions to women in Star Wars. But as the viewing audience will not be surprised at, there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some sense, like I, I just sort of put together like the difference between my reaction to Solo and the general consensus about it, and these these parts about this fan base um, that there's, in, in some sense, there's it, the fan base is, is splitting or is split between, I think, some of us who are um, willing to let. Uh, the Star Wars universe and the Star Wars characters become different things and evolve and be about now and have more interesting stories to tell. And those that, and I I don't entirely understand the perspective, you know, in my heart, just want it to kind of be the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And and even in that, like, a very particular interpretation of what sort of those original films or franchises are like. Um, And it's just disappointing. I mean, I think, I mean, part of what, made you know like when I, when I was a kid like star wars was a weirdo cult classic right. i mean it eventually became gigantic right. um but it was the yeah. same people that were like staying up late at night on sundays to record doctor who on public television on their black and white tv in the basement <laughs> which is what we did were the same people that were like raving about this star wars you know in 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 at the same love like when for those of us who are devoted to firefly you know like you know, like the, 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 the show which we describe as a space western for those that don't understand and for those that know, it's the 13 best episodes that have ever aired on television. <laughs> um, and I think that even just going and sitting in a theater and watching it, like at the theater I was at, there were only a few uh, few people there, but there was like an old couple that was really excited about watching this film. I don't know mm-hmm. what their history was. <laughs> and there were some like other younger folks that were kind of silent. Um, I, I just think that there's... I mean, I'm sure uh, academics like yourself write about it more, but th- there's there's something that's uh, happening that I think has sort of um, reared its head mostly about Solo, in that like it is a really good film mm-hmm. and and has a, a and is 100 percent a Star Wars film. Yeah. Um. You know, and you know, like, and, and again, you know, fits more with the aesthetic and the feel um, of the serial adventures of the Clone Wars. Um, but I think it's also part of what um, Lucas was going for in the first place. Yeah, for I sure. Mean, and part of the reasons why I think that those of us who don't like the prequels, one of the reasons why they don't seem to work too well is they're just not as iconic as the original four. It's like, mm-hmm. so we have huge, huge battle, and it's like, oh, like Gungans, which are cute, and droids, <laughs> which are interesting, and it never really has the same... Like, it never takes on those deeper meanings. Like, in the Clone Wars television show, there's all these references to, like, the differences between the clones and their brotherhood yeah. um, and the droids and their sort of, like, following of orders and obsession with other things. None of that. Yeah, I mean, that one episode of Clone Wars where you have Yoda hanging around with the clones. I mean, it's just an extraordinary piece of writing, which, yeah. you know, for me, partially helped clear the bad taste <laughs> that I had in my mouth of Star Wars at the time. Right. I, I just think there's, like... I mean, I don't know. I mean, like I play video games, and there are, uh, you know, there are, there's a few subset of video games, including like Dark Souls and this game called Dishonored, that are like they're I would say like tremendously well made, like mm-hmm. amazingly designed, beautifully shot, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, wonderful storylines, completely innovative gameplay. Um, also, Bioshock Infinite falls into this category. Just masterpieces. Um, and there's also like a crowd. They're like, oh, I don't get it. <laughs> um, and it's like, but we, you know, in some sense, it's it's not all that different from all right. the other games out there, but it's unique enough that there's a, 
I don't know. You know, there's like a, a, a limit beyond which the general audience can't take it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I, I just have always, this is kind of what I'm getting to. It's like, I always sort of thought that the the Star Wars fan base was this sort of like punk rock edgy fan base. And it, and I guess what's sort of hitting me in the face with Rose Tycho and the disapproval of Solo is like, they're not that anymore or yeah. haven't been, or maybe there's a process of ossification that happens but, like, I mean, there was nothing else like Star Wars at the time. And, like, it required a novel love of, like, flying space ninjas, you know, <laughs> it, which were awesome. Um, and there's there just seems to be, like, a, a reticence to, to accept even, like, a slight difference in tone. Or, like, and again, and again like, the, the female character thing kind of bothers me because it's, like... Um, Leia was an inspiration for an entire generation of women for how strong and she's the self-rescuing princess. Mm-hmm. And to to criticize Star Wars films for their like plethora of, you know, new strong female it's characters. It's like what what film were you watching? Right. You know, it's I mean I know there's the only one yeah. Leia, but it's mm-hmm. it's part of the franchise. I mean there was mm-hmm. there was no one else like her for 15 years. But that so there's something about when when we talk about like why wasn't this successful? I think that there's there's a level of looseness and innovation in terms of the storyline mm-hmm. that may just be too much for the current fan base. Yeah, but on the same hand, like uh, George Lucas originally intended these to be like Flash Gordon. I mean, he originally wanted to make a Flash Gordon film and then kind of moved it into this. And this feels like the most return to that sort of um, Saturday afternoon serial feel of them just sort of like falling into these different adventures and getting out of, you know... Um, close scrapes that they have to uh, get out of at the last minute. Uh, so I I don't know why people aren't um, connecting to it in that way. Uh, I did want to go back to some of those characters again, and kind of on a bigger scale, uh, what were your impressions of, you know, like Han and Lando, I think? Is it Alden Ehrenrich who plays Han? And I think he does a fine job. It's, you know, you get a feel for Han Solo. I did feel... Like sometimes, you know, when he kind of has this romantic moment with Kira in the closet where, you know, he later has sort of the moment with Leia um, and kisses her, but he sort of leans against the door. And some of those moments you did feel like it was like, uh, do I look like, you know, Han Solo now? Is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this the Harrison Ford look that you want? Some of those moments were too strong. And, and there was sort of some awkward, like, I didn't need to know how he got his solo name. That was pretty horrible just and obvious. We don't really need those sort of things explained. But I think he captured it most. And like like a lot of other people, I think Lando was, was pretty perfect and really fun character. I could have seen more of him. The I, I enjoyed your initial questions about the, their relationship. I enjoyed the relationship between Lando and Han. I, or Han. Han, uh, yeah. <laughs> And which one, whichever one it is, the um, I enjoyed their rapport. I thought the two key scenes, obviously, what a brilliant decision by the screenwriters to end off with the scene where he takes the Millennium Falcon from Lando. I was hoping, right? I was actually hoping going into the movie that that would be the culminating scene, mm. and then get it about halfway through, actually a little earlier than that, and and um. I was worried that he would then take ownership of the Millennium Falcon there, but they set it up very, very nicely. Right. And then, you know, obviously Lando gets his comeuppance. 
it's a it's a challenge. Um, what do I think about the actors? I think they do, generally speaking, a better job than what has been done in the Star Trek reboot. Mm. Star Trek reboot, if you go back to the first one, you know, J.J. Uh, Abrams had to resuscitate, basically, a corpse of a franchise. Right. It was a dead product. There were no new ideas. So he reconceptualized it, and he turned it into something that was wink-wink. Mm. Uh, at the performances, too. And so all you got in that first Star Trek movie, I actually think it's difficult to watch now as a result, are a set of caricatures. Happily, the actors in the subsequent movies have sort of weaned themselves off of that to a certain extent and started to develop their own habits, their own gimmicks, their own approaches, their own way of expressing what's in the character. Uh, so I was happy to see that Sola did not go in that direction with the possible exception of Lando. Um, but it came off as very performative, which I think in a way that works with a younger Lando uh, in these scenes where he's building himself up and clearly thinks mightily of himself. <laughs> I, I thought that that worked out quite well, but it's, it did seem to me that I could understand if people found, found that that was too J.J. Abrams, Star Trek-y caricature of the original actor, just turning up the dials. Um, as for the playing of Solo... Uh, you know, it, it's a challenge. What do you do? How do you coach the actor to yeah. play this iconic, this iconic, not only role but actor? Do you, when do you bring in the ticks, if at all? And I think that they they needed to bring them in. Um, I think there, I, when I saw it on the opening night, there were some obvious fans in the audience who were applauding or smiling or mm. chuckling or you know otherwise getting into the ticks when they did come up. Yeah. They, you got more of them at the end with the exchange between Lando and him. Mm -hmm. uh, he comes back and Lando says, where's my cut? I, I felt like at that point we were getting the uh, Harrison Ford version of the character. Mm -hmm. So it's a difficult thing to do. Do you do those ticks at all? Clearly right. at, at this stage, it's a decision that franchise filmmakers have decided that you can't just have a bold new performance. You have to be doing all of these callbacks to previous actors and the way they play roles. I'm not sure what I, I, I certainly as a, a fan of the Bond franchise, I don't think that that's necessary at all. Mm. I think that fans would get over it, especially yeah. if it's a good performance. Mm -hmm. um, so people do, I, I understand people are criticizing the performance of Solo as being a kind of empty center of this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, that may well be true, uh, but there's so much else going on in it. I didn't mind it at all. He does have some screen presence, mm -hmm. uh, some charisma, but when one, it's one of these things where, and this is my last point on this, it's one of these things where when you read it uh, in print or a critic says it, 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 it sticks to the movie when you see it next. Yeah. Mm. In, between, in between seeing the movie uh, twice, uh, I read one review where someone complained that um sorry the actor's name who plays solo his name escapes me alden enric or something like that yeah enric yeah see um that he's too short hmm. and i started paying attention to how tall he <laughs> imagining harrison ford and i was like yep yep he's too short yeah. <laughs> in a way but still i mean i think he did it was a tough thing to do and i think he did a decent job there i noticed that more with lando as a funny side note um but it, it's not enough to like affect 
my enjoyment of either of their performances. And I think on the one hand, I would have to say going into the announcement of this um, solo film, it was not something I needed by any means. And as a big Harrison Ford fan growing up between like Indiana Jones and Blade Runner and Star Wars, um, nobody can really like do Harrison Ford um, or as especially Han Solo. Like it's just him. You know, and he kind of has this like looseness and casualness that I think is hard to capture. Um, even though Alden has like, like you said, he does have some charisma um, that he's giving off some swagger of his own, but it's not, it's not the same for me. And and I mean, I just enjoy like seeing old Harrison Ford do interviews now, and he just like doesn't give a crap and just says whatever he wants is one of my well, favorite things. But is part of the problem not the perform? I mean, it's difficult to divorce these things. Right. Is part of the problem not the performance, but the way the role was written? Mm-hmm. Um, one, the one, one of the criticisms I would have, and it would have made this movie perhaps more, shall I say, marketable, um, is that the, the movie really doesn't make being a pilot seem all that cool. Yeah. Or that interest. I mean, it's it's we get the action adventure. We get the fact that the character is really passionate about it. But I'm not sure that that's transferred well to us. Hmm. And so as a result, Han Solo doesn't feel like that cool character mm-hmm. like we once found him to be. Um, yes, he's a sort of, uh, you know, well, the word scoundrel comes to mind, but he's a sort of rule breaker. He does things the way he thinks is best, and that comes through even in The Force Awakens. But we needed to feel, it seems to me, that being a pilot is a bloody rad thing to do. Yeah. And it's not easy to write for that. I mean, how do you convince, even like little kids, like I'd like to think if I went to go see this movie with my nephews who are 9 and 11, that they'd be like, wow, like the Millennium Falcon, like I want to ride that, you know? And I don't think that they would. Uh, so I don't think that the the way the character was written mm-hmm. allowed uh, Aiden to emerge in uh, in a strong performance. Alden, excuse me. How did you guys feel about his character arc in this film? Did you feel like it was um, a Han Solo uh, sort of good arc that connects him to the later films? I think it was a little mixed for me. Like overall, it worked, but I mean, he seemed like too nice from the start. Even though he was supposed to be like growing up on the streets and sort of um, a thief in some ways and kind of hustled his way through things, like ultimately, you know, he was doing something very noble to get back to the woman he loved. Um, Just some of, you know, I don't know if it was between the two different directors and getting sort of uh, putting together different takes from those directors and things like that but I don't know that it always followed through like at the end I'm not sure that he earns that sort of shooting first the character I see in this film he seems much more sympathetic um, to the people around him up to that point even though he's he's still trying to look out for himself but he's very sympathetic to everyone around him and mostly trying to do the right thing by people um so it, so I don't know that I quite felt that. It wasn't enough that it took me out of it, but uh, I was trying to figure out where they were kind of taking him on this well, journey and like what, because it kind of seemed like a similar character arc to what we get later, where he's sort of like I only care about myself, but then like gets pulled into the rebellion, you know. 
Um, and maybe that's what they were trying to do, like say like this was something that happened earlier. Um, and there is a certain amount of cynicism that happens when he sees Kira leave. I think he sort of resigns to that that the world is not as romantic as he thought it was. But well, I mean, so well, my perspective I think is this: just about the characterization of of Han himself. I, I think it's similar to the Han we get later in that, you know, like. He talks. Everyone calls him a scoundrel, yeah. but he never does any scoundrelly thing. <laughs> he only ever does the good thing. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, and it's, think about like in, in terms of characterization. Like we only see the days in which he makes the good choices. Right. You right. know, those are the only days that are part of our grand narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fine. I mean, you have yeah. you know, and and that like that in and of itself is the archetype, is the rogue, right? Mm-hmm. And and that character is compelling. Um, I mean, I do think. Uh, I mean, when I think about okay. Could they have sort of written th- this movie to be more focused on the journey of Han, who's trying to save his friend, to Han, who's trying to save himself, mm-hmm. right? And and I just think that, you know, if eventually at the end when he shoots Beckett, if he, you know, if we see him with like a hard face, you know, having turned him, having known that he can no longer trust anyone yeah. and must shoot first, um, it's totally inconsistent with his character in this film mm-hmm. and generally inconsistent with his character in the other films because again even though he's like ah I don't give a shit he gives them a ride right yeah. he's like ah I don't want help he yeah. shows up in the Millennium Falcon at the right <laughs> moment yeah. to help Luke destroy the Death Star that's what he always does um, and focusing on uh, what he does as opposed to what he says about himself I think the characterization is consistent mm-hmm. I mean I do I don't I as much as I love um, Harrison Ford for all the reasons we've mentioned that I have like some hard feelings in my heart for him because <laughs> as an as an older actor he complains incessantly about having played Han Solo having been trapped in these roles mm-hmm. and I just like as someone who grew up loving it I'm like there are like a gazillion people who would gladly take your spot right so you know I, I'm sorry that you're your lot in this life was to be one of the most beloved characters <laughs> in all of film right I'm sorry for you um, so because of that I feel like I you know, Han Solo is someone who is not just Harrison Ford, I would boldly say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is a character in a world based on an archetype that has existed since the beginning of time. Um, and I think that the way he's written in this film um, is a much, it, it, it's a slightly lighter version. Yeah. You know, like it's a little more jaunty mm-hmm. in feel. Um, I Like I don't, uh, you know, the way his sort of naivete about Kira is shattered is awkward. I don't mm. think it works particularly well. Yeah. I mean, I, I like, you know, in describing the structure of how it happens, he's trying to get, find her, then she finds her in the syndicate. Like, all the big pieces work. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's the performance or the actual lines that don't quite work. Right. Um, but I, you know, like, you know, in this film, one of the th- crucial things that Han does, at least in my opinion, is he comes up with the elaborate scheme to rip off the bad guys at the end with, uh, you know, uh, with refined stuff. Right. Um, which is quintessentially, I think... What he is, yeah, um, he you know, that. and because you know, and part of that, he needs to, he needs to be, con- needs to be, um, it needs to be plausible that he is a scoundrel mm-hmm. in order for that double switch to work. Right. I mean, I think it works fine. Um, I, you know, I, I often, like I often say about Peter Jackson, you know, like making the Lord of the Rings. It's like, first of all, we just have to be immen- tremendously thankful that he didn't screw it up, <laughs> right. right? And after we get past that, we can then talk about what he did do. Um, but I think that there's there's so many ways in which this film could have and maybe was 
going awry. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing we get is, is you know, even if you don't, if this is the first Star Wars movie you see, which it's got to be that way for somebody. Yeah. Um, it's mm-hmm. a great entry into this world, mm-hmm. especially this little bit at the end. Who's that guy with the horns? Yeah. Right. You know, even if you if you don't know who Darth Maul is, you have this this structure that's present in, in so many Star Wars stories of like we like we get double crossed and we get triple crossed and there's and then there's all and there's Sith right behind it. Right. right? There's this Somebody whole deeper layer of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again in the Star Wars universe for the in terms of world building, the the idea that the Sith is sitting behind a lot of these criminal syndicates is a is a is a hallmark of a whole lot of the writing. Yeah, that's my bit on solo. Uh, yeah, well, uh, not much to add. I would just say uh, the um, a lot of the way that at least the major franchises these days are writing the male characters is as a kind of traumatized masculinity. They mm-hmm. they face a death, or they face some sort of um, early experience, or they they think that the the world is collapsing around them and don't trust institutions or their friends so very often what you're getting is i mean in the current sort of darker blockbuster are male characters that are traumatized hmm. it's clear that han solo you just can't create of him a traumatized character so it creates a problem then how do you innovate in terms of writing you want to give backstory Mm-hmm. It's in a current moment where people view trauma as like the 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 go-to thing to define characters. Where from Batman to Bond, they all have traumas in their past that shape the present, right. and they the past keeps flying back into the present. But Han is not like this. He's outside of that current norm. So they clearly wanted to give him some bad experiences, but not make him not make him traumatized. But show the seeds of why he becomes opportunistic and solipsistic and and slightly jaded about yeah. the way things work. A kind of thin understanding, whatever's functional is best, and just make do. That seems to have come through a little bit here. I would have liked to see one or two scenes that indicated that he could become the Han Solo that's more, that's more um, cynical mm-hmm. about the world. We don't quite really get that. Uh, so I would have done that. One major misstep, since you, you were asking about the trajectory of the character here. Yeah. The one big misstep to me, seeing the movie a second time, it just struck me as absolutely hokey, was when after shooting Beckett, he runs up to him to console him. Mm. I And grab his hand and nurse him, and, and sort of hold him as he dies. So Woody Harrelson mm. can catch his death scene. Right. That's strike me as what was necessary there Mm. this needed to be a han that was suddenly becoming a little bit more detached and colder it seems to just let the shot happen show one of those great close-ups of his eye you could have shown a little bit of tears forming but and that would have been enough and then he walks away with chewy and lets beckett die miserably or something like this where it doesn't come off as a trauma it's just i'm i'm moving on Mm. we need to from point a to point b let's just get out of here and they could have done that. So that little hug at the end or the embrace, it doesn't strike me as, as particularly effective there. Um, the, you mentioned the guy with the horns. Um, uh, I think not only would I have renamed this movie, again, hindsight being 2020, to give, to give 
fans, but also just casual viewers who like the Star Wars thing, to give them a sense that this hooks in somehow, that this is more than just Solo, uh, I would have renamed it. But I also think that they needed to find a way somehow without revealing the big twist that this was all Maul. He's the head of, uh, of the, the organization behind all of this. They needed to find a way to market that. Mm. And they just couldn't. So this yeah. move came off in every trailer, in every teaser, in every TV spot. It came off as a one-off. And that there's no necessary piece of the puzzle here to get to understand either the animated series or the ongoing uh, numbered uh, movies. And I think that's unfortunate. I mean, guys, this movie is really about, to be honest, it, it, it is about Solo and his backstory, but it's about the origins of the rebellion. Right. Yeah. I mean, he, through the Kessel Run, no one knew this. This is a key, like, this is a, if people are interested in myth, and clearly they are in Star Wars, if, they're, if they really wanted, if they needed to have some sense that this was going to be an important uh, uh, episode in the ongoing saga and filling out the story of this, of this universe. Through the Kessel Run, they were able to uh, obviously steal the amount of coaxium that they did, which Han then says is worth 60 million credits. And then uh, uh, the cloud uh, riders were going to go off and basically use it to start the rebellion. I mean, this is crucial, but I don't think anyone even registers this in the reviews. So that's a key, that's a key lacuna, it seems to me. It's something that they couldn't possibly have marketed, though. So they needed to find a way to write the story a little differently so that they could have marketed it not only to, let's say, people who know the major numerated series, numbered series movies, but also the the young kids who know Rebels and who know Clone Wars, they needed to find a way to maybe take one of the Clone Wars characters or the Rebels characters, stitch them in to a, a trailer so that the kids nerd out and they desperately want to see it because they like the character from the animated series so that when Maul is shown, they're like, holy shit, it connects back to Rebels. Yeah, I mean, I... It wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, I sort of, unfortunately, totally agree with you um, in that, um, you know, I, I, like, in, in, yeah, in terms of the, like, how this fits in with a larger picture, it's just as crucial as what happens in Rogue One, e even more so in some sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and like, and I kept, I, I kept, I mean, one of the things I, we've talked about that I, I hold out secret hope for is that I'm going to see a live action Ahsoka in some film somewhere, <laughs> right? right? And, and this film, I, I, I kept, I was like, Please let Captain Rex be in this dusty town. Please let Captain Rex walk out of somewhere and pull a, a towel off his head. You know, give please, please give me Captain Rex. Um, we didn't get it, but I think that I think you're absolutely right in that there's a if it leaned a little bit more into connecting with those threads and getting those those folks and those themes in it, mm -hmm. um, it, it it becomes you know a little bit and it becomes a different marketing it becomes a different thing you know i mean it's like the birth of the rebellion or some mm. other name that's actually good you know um you know like a, a young man you know just looking out for himself and sets in motion uh something that would become the rebellion and shake the universe or whatever mm. it happens to be in whatever kind of voice you want um but i i do think that my 
just hearing you talk about it, Colin, makes me think that um, it was conceived of from the very beginning as a one-off that people are going to see because they love Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. And they re- like after it gets to market, they realize that they needed more. Added you know, and you know, because in, in some sense, what's different is Rogue One is driven by explaining the story and including a battering ram finally in space, right? <laughs> um, and this is about a person. So if you're, you're like, yeah, you know, Han Solo is cool, but I don't really need to know his backstory. Um, uh, you shouldn't be able to say that, you know, in some sense, you, you know, like because there, it's it's not just about him. Uh, you know, a point that there there is like crucial elements of the larger story that happen here. And you don't know that unless you watch it. Yeah, I think I can see both ways. Um, from a marketing standpoint, I totally agree. I think maybe they could have done the thing where they've done in some other trailers where we hear like an ominous voice, which would have been like Maul's. And then some people would have got it or said like, maybe that's Darth Maul. That's really interesting. Um, and Or you know there's some sort of evil force behind you know, something happening in, in the solo film. Um, and then, the, and then the rebellion, I think some of those elements felt a little shoehorned into me. My idealistic star Wars self would have liked to just seen this be a small story, um, a point in time in solo's life that we kind of see things happen for him. I think ultimately that's what I've liked to see. Cause I, I think we, if we're going to argue, you know, like, it, it, why does it all have to be about the Skywalkers and um, this sort of Jedi heritage? You know, I think then we have to say, like, at what point do we stop connecting all these elements that, oh, Han Solo was connected to Darth Maul at some point, to the Rebellion in the past? It seems like a little bit of becoming like a stretch of connecting all these dots in this universe, um, this galaxy that really these small set of characters were all connected to each other. So I, I can see it both ways, but I would did want to ask you guys just as a fun question: this Emphis Nest character, who's sort of part of this burgeoning rebellion, mm-hmm. um, she mentions her mother at some point as being an important factor. Um, do you guys have any theories or heard any theories on who the mother is? I, I I wanted to think that it was I was trying to point it to somebody in Rebels or Clone Wars, probably Rebels, but I I couldn't quite come up with it yet. I hadn't even thought of that question, to be honest. Um, wouldn't surprise me if there was some sort of connection, but I have not read a single thing hmm. that showed about fans speculating about that at all. Oh, I I read a whole trove of Darth Maul as her father ones. Oh, because she's she's got that spear, and it's just I did like hear when that actually, and you know yeah. just like when Darth Maul flips mm-hmm. off the thing. Um, I mean, the thing that like uh, this is an aside, but it's related. Um, the thing that our family talked about most was like, okay, so we saw Darth Maul, but like, what what legs did he have? Right, yeah, right. Because like, I mean, form? we're trying he to date it in up, time. Yeah. Like, so it has no, to. No, it's quite clear. It's quite clear. The um, by the way, it's not Darth Maul. It's Maul, right? I mean, he's no longer Darth. True, indeed, in, true. But the uh, that's what first point. The second point is. It occurred to me that this was one of the things that was happening as a result of the dim projection. Hmm. When you got the angle from behind him, uh-huh. when looking at Kira, you can clearly see there's a low angle shot and you see mechanical legs. Okay. Because hmm. I, I mean, I, 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 we didn't know if he got like a second set or if he was still using the ones he got from his brother, like the sort of long ones with the really, really big feet. But yeah, I mean, because in my projection, it wasn't clear. It was, he just had dark. Yeah. Had dark I didn't cloak. notice that either. 
Um, Enfys Nest, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's something that I've long been convinced about, which is movies have this power. You don't need to perform. Hmm. You don't need to have an actor uh, do much. The actor can just have a look mm-hmm. or a presence yeah. on screen, and that's enough, and it tells the whole story. That woman that they cast to play her, mm-hmm. when she takes off the helmet, we get a close-up. Later on, she has a few lines, and then she mentions to Han that she's off to fund the rebellion. Her look was more than enough. So um, I thought just a brilliant piece of casting mm. that suggests a great deal about this character just through her eyes. Mm. And that's mm. about it. I hope we don't, I actually hope we don't ever find out who her mother is. It doesn't seem particularly relevant to me. Mm-hmm. I hope we just leave it this way, that the rebellion, the spark of the rebellion was the Kessel Run and this one woman who was leading this small group of marauders trying to get together the funds to start something. Mm. Um, and felt the legacy of her mother, you know, a sort of tribal legacy w- was driving her as well. I think it's a very nice, modest beginning to all of it. And in a corner of the galaxy where the Empire has no presence. So yeah. you wouldn't see any of this happening. I mean, if her mother turns out to be Ahsoka, I wouldn't be totally disappointed. Um, no, I wouldn't be disappointed with that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They just um, seem to be making a point of creating a mystery there. Uh, do any of you speak Wookiee? <laughs> uh, no, no, but I mean, so... Well, the- here's the, here's why I'm asking because it's one of those it's one of those amazing things. Now it's in the dialogue. How long did it actually take, and <laughs> to do the Kessel Run, and uh, Chewbacca actually says it. And then, if you remember, the joke was Han says yes, but not if you round down. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So it's we'll never know in a sense how yeah. long it actually, yeah. <laughs> And, and I mean, uh, just one of the things, uh, something else that I really liked, um, I mean, I was a big fan of L3, but like the little, there's two moments that involve Kira that I thought were great. There's one when like L3 is explaining to Kira, like, you know, how Lando is more into her than she is to him. <laughs> and Kira's like, how does that work? And she just says, oh, it works. Which is like, only yeah, Phoebe yeah. Waller-Bridge is about the only person I know who could possibly <laughs> pull oh, that yeah. off like that. And then, and then this is it. And so, like, the characterization of both of those, because Kira comes off as being strangely naive, mm-hmm. which she isn't, mm-hmm. um, but it, it adds to the fluctuating sort of complexity of her character mm. throughout the story. Yeah. The second one is also in that cockpit, which is a great place. Um, you know, like, uh, I think Kira's sitting in the driver's seat, and Han is like, we need to, like, increase power to the, you know, the rear deflector shields. And she's like, we definitely need to do that. <laughs> and then Chewie comes in and, like, flips a bunch Chewie of stuff. It, yeah. And, you know, and he's like, how old are you? You know, and, 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 and that is, like, one of the few times where we get Chewie doing something. And, and mm-hmm. because of, like, the intelligence and skill mm-hmm. with which he does that, it adds all these, like, for me, like, retroactively adds this level to the times when he has to like shoot someone or punch someone he's like god like don't you know how to do this thing right you know and and it it just it 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 allows me to get more out of him Mm -hmm. i mean and on the comment of wookie speech i don't know if i talked about this when we talked about um the last jedi but when i watched um 
uh, uh, Kevin Smith's review of The Last Jedi, there was this bit where he, he in his, in his, what he wanted to happen was when um, Chewie comes in to tell Luke about Han, what he wanted him to do was to be like, you know, like say it in Wookiee uh-huh. and just sort of show Mark Hamill reacting with sort of untranslated Wookiee right. in we there. We don't need to hear what um, yeah. And I just, um, I love the mix in this film of the translated and the untranslated Wookiee. Mm-hmm. And I, I you know, because like, we get it translated at the beginning and I love language humor, particularly like when it doesn't work entirely well. They're like, me, you, play, fight, smack, thing. Um, and then we move into a space when Han speaks to him in English. We don't know if he's speaking Wookiee or not, um, but it works. And we transition yeah. back into the world that we understand where like people talk to droids and droids talk back and we don't know what they're saying. Um, and I just, like, there was... It seemed like they put a lot of thought into the balance of those two things, and I think it worked really well. And it was really fun to see, to actually have some sense of what a conversation between uh, someone and Chewie looked like when you could actually understand what it was. Yeah, and I I mean, I think in general that was one of uh, the best sort of connections between characters was they did capture that feel of they did um, Han and Chewie really regained that feeling that they were partners and uh, had good banter between each other the way that Harrison Ford did with um, with Chewie as well. Um, and I do... I, I, I want to give it a tiny bit of, like, rehabilitation to the, the end with that, like, Han shooting and hugging Beckett. The yeah. only thing that I want to say about it is... Um, I haven't seen it the second time, so maybe I, I'll find it sort of awkward the second time. But, I mean, I think they were... And, and this, is, this is something that I liked... I mean, uh, I, I, I don't see Han as becoming more hardened or practical at the end. I, mm. I see him learning a lesson that's being taught to him by his teacher, which is Beckett. Right. And the, the, the difficult lesson is that uh, you have to kill me. Mm. Um, uh, or you have to kill all scheming bastards like me. Right. Um, because most of the folks in the film, I mean, I think if you look at it, they, they joke about how Han is different. Mm. Either naive or silly or young um, and it's it's not how he portrays himself. He's sort of he portrays himself as being more confident sure and roguish and whatnot. But it's no one else really seems to buy it mm-hmm. um, in the film. And I think that um, when he does shoot Beckett, he realizes that there there's a little more that he has to do. Mm. Um, and Beckett's you know and, and so like and I Beckett recognizes that right yeah. and and, yeah. and he's essentially teaching him. And and, mm-hmm. and I think uh, you know in that moment it was. Uh, Beckett was going to kill him. No hard feelings. Right. Um, but I think Beckett really wanted him to to shoot him. And it was also like a, a clash between, you know, Beckett the... You know, like, Beckett doesn't mourn for Paula. You know, yeah. in, in a way that I want him to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Han feels differently about people. And, and they're two different sort of roguish perspectives in this world. Uh, and it sets Han, again, as someone who is sympathetic and, and does care, which I like. Yeah. Um, and, and like the story of him more, to some sense, in some sense, as um, someone who portrays himself as being a rogue but actually is quite kind. Mm-hmm. Um, which it's is not... Oh, sorry. Which is not entirely how he is in A New Hope. Um, right. But uh, in the grand in the grand scheme of Star Warsness, that's kind of where he ends up being, you know. Because mm-hmm. he again, he does he he always flies your ship in at the last moment and saves it. And he's he's cons- you know, like he he jokes with Lando about the the ship, but he really cares about Lando. Like he jokes with other people about stuff, but he really cares about them. Um, and that's a thing I like. Uh, 
I don't disagree with anything about the the need for him to shoot first or to kill Beckett. I mean, I totally see that, that there needed to be a further lesson, etc. I just think it would have been nice. Um, it would have given more resonance to what I think is a peculiar choice, but in the end, a pretty effective one to show um, that Beckett be very quickly mourns Val and then punches out Han and then they're quickly moving on and we don't ever really get much conversation about her mm -hmm. uh, with one exception throughout the rest of the movie yeah. to show Han show a similar let's say um, hmm. um, coarseness or an, a, a, an accumulation of uh, well not an accumulation what, what's the word I'm looking for here to show that he is a certain distance emotionally yeah like a, a, a parallel practicality would have correct which would have been the lesson because he would have in a sense uh he, he was he would have been becoming beckett in that moment well but and it, I, but nice he can't resume. become beckett right beckett doesn't want han to become him he well, wants him to be able to do what he does sometimes i think sure but doesn't in the end does, aren't beckett and han solo mature han solo now aren't they comparable yeah i mean i think I would agree with Jeremy that like he he has still um, a sense of like his values ultimately that sort of drive him that Beckett doesn't quite have. I mean, he double crosses him earlier and is sort of like, eh, that's what I do, you know, like I'm a scoundrel um, and that's always what I'm going to do. And I think ultimately we see when Han is older, like in the original trilogy, that he like struggles with that more. You know, um, he's still going to try to get, you know, his peace, but he uh, he kind of holds on to that like old like noir detective. Like I have, you know, uh, a code sort of, you know, that I still live by. Um, it's mostly looking out for myself, but there's something I else just there. I like yeah. um, I, I find our disagreements quite productive, but I think <laughs> that Beckett wouldn't have brought the Millennium Falcon back and saved Luke in A New Hope. He would have right. gone. Right. And I think that the d distance between the two of them is, I think, if I'm being generous, what, you know, they were trying to show in that hug. Mm. I do think, like, I, I appreciate the emotional beat, though I think it could have been done better. You know, maybe it's subtler, like you said, he walks away but looks back, perhaps. Um, but I also, I mean, like, when I saw it the first time, I, like, there was nothing about it emotionally that, that rubbed me the wrong way. Mm. I was, like, it felt, you know, like... Um, like in White Fang, when he uh, scares White Fang away, or when you know you like, in in any ver any Disney story when the kid has to take the pet out and kill it, yeah. you know it's like this reluctant but very practical choice which has to be made. I think I see more warmth in Beckett, to be honest, um, especially around the campfire. Hmm. But I so I don't want to press the point because uh, I don't know that it adds much. But I I, I do think that. In Beckett inviting them in, yes, it was at the service of helping them do the job, but there was also more there. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I, I do see some comparable aspects to Beckett and the Han Solo that we would eventually get. In other words, there's a caring for people. That's fair. It's yeah. not. It's not all. That. It's not all. Um, it's not all self-serving. Uh, speaking of which, I mean the. Maybe two points. I wonder what you thought about it. These two points. I'll quickly rattle them off and then let you sound off or whatever. But the number one, 
what did you think of the twistomania uh, in uh, Dryden Voss's at the end in the climax? No, this person was this way. No, he or she is not. Then twist here, twist there, twist here, twist there. I thought there were one too many twists. You catch what I'm saying here? Yes. Mm-hmm. We think that we think that Beckett is this, then he's not, then he's this, then he's not. And I think he has about three twists. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is, are we to assume at the end, because it's never quite stated, that they're flying off to the Jabba job? That will lead to the price on on Han's head. Yeah, I mean, the um, I think those scenes with Dryden Voss ultimately both times where they sort of like come up with this con to do this job with him to get back in his good graces, and then later when we kind of get all these twists, were both a little bit awkward for me. Like he seemed too accommodating in some ways for this sort of crime boss, even though he's still trying to make the deal happen himself too. Um, And and at the same time, it was sort of like a fun character, you know, like you could tell he was having fun with these sort of deals and thought that he could always get out of it. But yeah, it was a little uh, like one of those endings that gets a little too messy um, with what everybody sort of wants and their motivations and things. Um, so I definitely can see that. And I, and I, as far as like the Jabba, the hut job, I, I don't know that it was necessarily implying that that was what got the price on his head, but definitely trying to connect it to his history with Jabba. And I think that's where they were going next um, to at least begin that relationship with each other um, of doing jobs for Jabba. But I'm not sure what Jeremy thinks. Oh, well, I mean, I'm I'm constantly thinking about like how like Maul fits in in this mm-hmm. Sith world of stuff, <laughs> and 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 you know when like does that mean he's alive during a New Hope and what is he doing and but um, uh, I mean from my point of view, um, I, and I feel very naive in saying this. I I did not have any problem with the twists at the end. It was hard a little bit to explain it to my son, but for me it was like. <laughs> You know, it was like a confidence, like, you know, and, and in some sense reminded me a lot of The Sting, right? Where there, there are multiple twists, but there's ultimately only two. One, that it's the real coaxium, and two, that, you know, Beckett is not, you know, Beckett is uh, double-crossing Voss. Um, and I, uh, when I first watched it, when I, as soon as I came out, I was like, um, that generally made sense. Mm-hmm. Like, it's convoluted and complicated, um, but also, like, seeing you know, Maul at the end of it, um, you know, is, uh, you know, is like the spider crawling across the grave at the end of a horror film. I was like, ah, you know, like there was a whole lot of sinisterness involved in this process, um, which again, we don't, you know, because uh, there's the stuff about the coaxium and the stuff about Beckett. And then the, the other layer is when Kira betrays Voss, mm-hmm. which is in some sense, we've been waiting for that since the beginning. That sort of explained, I think, by Maul. I didn't have a problem with it. I liked it. Um, I liked, you know, Voss thinking confidently that they had faked it mm-hmm. um, and that sort of exchange. Um, I liked Beckett coming in and having sold Han out, but then not having sold Han out, but had done it, you know, actually have done it. Um, I was fine with that. Um, I I did not like the bit about connecting it to Jabba at the end. I'm like, 
if it were, I, I wanted it to be a little less specific. Mm-hmm. Like maybe we're going to go, because there, there are many huts. Yeah. You know, maybe he's going to get involved in the hut family. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, in terms of timeline, like there's, I mean, how long does a job take? Like there's, <laughs> right, yeah. if it's only one job between here and A New Hope, right. um, there's not enough time in there for me to understand this Han Solo turn in, to turn into that Han Solo. And there's not enough time for Enfys Nest and the Young Rebellion and what's going on in the Phantom mm-hmm. to, to really culminate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, wanted, I wanted less deadline there. I wanted... Yeah, I mean, I think we do get, um, in the original trilogy, mention of, like, multiple jobs that he's done yeah. for job over the years. Absolutely. And, like, he always pays him back or, like, yeah. whatever, you know. So I think it could be over time. Yeah, and maybe he's maybe he spends you know the majority of his you know smuggling career working for Java. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I was just a little bit like, eh, back off a little bit. Yeah. Don't uh, don't get ahead of yourself. Um, I think we should kind of wrap up here, but I kind of wanted to ask you guys like bigger perspective, looking at how this film's doing. Um, do you think this is going to push Disney to kind of back off on these sort of standalone films, and and push more towards like. Let's include Jedi's in there, and you know the Sith and sort of evil. Let's stick with a little more of that working um, formula. And you know, are they? They've seemed to have a lot of bad luck with young directors with like their own vision, supposedly. And then they bring in sort of like a rock solid, you know, workman type director and Ron Howard um, to kind of fix things. And if they're gonna kind of pull back on that too and say. Let's get a little more established, trustworthy directors here. If that's sort of going to be their takeaway. This is the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, you have to imagine that Disney executives right now are having meetings, deciding what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. There is, as you, I think we've mentioned, um, there is some reporting suggesting that they're going to shift gears or they're going to readjust. Right. I don't think that we'll know quite know what they're going to do with the Star Wars story films until we get the next one. Mm. I, in other words, I don't know that we're going to get a sense of how they're going to adjust until the next one comes out. Yeah. And Well, until the next one is at least begins its promotional campaign. Mm-hmm. The, the industry now, it, the reporting is industry insiders, I use that word loosely and in quotation marks, are saying that, are blaming the marketing for the failure here. Right. That's been... That's always been my hunch, as I've said multiple times at this um, in our conversation here. So it seems to me that are they going to shift? Are they going to change? Are they going to uh, figure out new strategies? I think that's inevitable. Mm-hmm. But is it that they're going to change is precisely the question. Is it now such that Disney is having this massive existential question about whether or not Star Wars is a viable franchise of the scope and scale that Marvel is. I think there's no question that they wanted it to be that way. But there's a bizarre way in which the ghost of George Lucas is coming back here and perhaps haunting Disney from a certain point of view. I remember, um, I don't know if any of you have watched it, I think I've mentioned it before in a previous visit here, the Netflix series Toys That Made Us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You talked about Yeah, I haven't yeah. watched it, but... Um, I haven't either, yeah. I'm aware of it, yeah. And especially given this conversation, the episode on Star Wars toys. Hmm. After the release of Return of the Jedi, 
um, toy stores and distributors desperately wanted more Star Wars product. And Lucas said no, hmm. that I'm putting this whole thing on the shelf. And my interpretation of that is that George Lucas always knew or had the intuition that he did not want to overexpose this product. And that Disney right now is probably on some level asking themselves, have we just totally overexposed this universe, this intellectual property? And how are we going to figure this out? They've already apparently greenlit the Bubba Fett movie, right. which you have to imagine they're reconsidering at this stage. Please, They've, Disney, please. Well, don't make that film. Yeah, well, I, you know, after this one, you have to imagine that they're thinking that. They've already greenlit, as far as I know, I could be wrong here, maybe your listeners can sort of check in on that, the the uh, live-action series that will be released on the Disney streaming service. Yeah, I think that is official. Yeah, yeah. John Favreau is going to be behind that. I mean, I right. think it was a major misstep to release, to stick with the schedule, even with, like, the director shakeup of following The Last Jedi so quickly. Um, I think they should have just pushed it to December of this year, you know, given some breathing room to that Star Wars universe, because now we also have a year and a half wait for the final film in the trilogy. And I I just, I don't know what their thinking was in that, um, because they had to wait and give space, I think, for the marketing for Solo, after The Last Jedi, and then it seems sort of rushed, I think, for a general audience who isn't really following this as closely as we do. Um, Isn't the idea there that they were releasing this to coincide with the build-up to the opening of the Star Wars world at Disney World? Isn't this part of the schedule? So they must be thinking that, too. Is this going to be nearly as lucrative as we always wanted it to be? so I think they're probably asking a range of questions here. But again, I'm not quite sure that we have a sense at this early stage how they're going to adjust. Yeah. I mean, I do, I mean, to, to jump a little bit on like the marketing bandwagon. I mean, when I remember sitting here oh so months ago <laughs> when Eli showed me the trailer for Solo and uh, I was like, that looks real dumb. <laughs> um, you know, and I was like, I don't care about watching that film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 it, and it seemed in some sense, that like the film that I watched, like I I can understand how you would cut a trailer like that based on the film Um, because it doesn't, like it it reveals absolutely nothing about the story you're about to see except that Han's in it and Lando's in it and there's this Peter. Um, But the story is great and you have no, I had no sense of what I was going to watch going into it from the teaser to the regular trailer to the movie poster to all this other stuff. I mean, like, even the movie poster seems fairly disingenuous in comparison to, like, the film that I watched. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I think that that's, in some sense, it, it, it's marketing, but it's also, like, conception. Like, I think it's, I mean, I I think they did conceive of it as this thing that everyone's going to go watch because they love Han Solo. Right. Um, yep. And they just, they need more, you know? And, yeah. like, the audience, you know, to go, again, and, and I would, st- I, I, historically, I think it's important like to after having watched Infinity War made by Disney to go watch another film like you need mm-hmm. something in you know compelling i mean freaking sh- throw L3 in there like i don't know there's so, like if i if they were to give me this film as as it is and ask me to cut a trailer for it that still maintained the principles of not revealing some of the big stuff 
I, I think I, I think all of us could do a much better job because and it's disappointing. I mean, the trailer made if I hadn't seen the trailer, hadn't seen the poster and just knew about it, I would be more excited to see it than I was. Mm. Um, well, and we, the, the marketing was like a buzzkill for me. Yeah, I think I agree with you about the trailers. I mean, you want one wonders where they spent the hundred fifty million dollars on uh, marketing that they're now is now keeping the movie totally underwater. I mean, this movie is going to be a net loss Mm -hmm. at the box office. I I say that because what else was there? I mean, there there are certain kinds of tie-ins. Presumably they paid for that. Um, I actually do pick up these things. I don't know if you do or your listeners do, but Entertainment Weekly, every time there's a Star Wars movie that comes out, releases this ultimate guide to the movie. right. So I have both of them right here in front of me, and your listeners and you guys can just do a basic comparison. The Han Solo one is exclusively about character, about Han Solo. The Man We Never Knew is one of the chapters. Uh, then Han Solo about the actor becoming Han, Harrison Ford's advice to Alden. So it's all of Chewbacca, Kira. What was missing here is what you had in the Rogue One uh, Ultimate Guide, and it's right on the cover, and it's very simple. There's a whole, it's almost like a 10-page piece on the saga's timeline explained. Mm. So what you had there for, you know, my nephews w- were reading with fascination this timeline because it fits in the video games, it fits in the animated series, and crucially fits in the events of Rogue One. So you knew where that this was fitting in. Han Solo, the guide, not so much. So again, I think Jeremy's 100% right. They were pitching this to be about character and totally misjudged the market. Yeah, they were just selling that character and hoping everybody would jump on board with that because he's such a a fan favorite. Well, can I just interject with this? Because I, I, you both of you have mentioned repeatedly that you went with your children. Yeah. I think it's a crucial question about whether or not young kids, specific more more often than not young boys, were attracted to this movie. My, I said it, I said it in the Last Jedi uh, conversation that we had. My nephews are attracted to the Jedi, to Darth Vader, to the Jedi Sith thing, to the fact that they uh, could have lightsabers. None of that's here. So I wonder whether or not your kids enjoyed this movie. I mean, to be honest. Oh, my kids loved it. I mean, my, my it was a little it was a little long for my youngest, who's six, but um, my nine year old like every day we like talk for a good thirty minutes about the film. Um, I mean, he really I, he really enjoyed it. I mean, I think he got. I mean, he's also older, slightly, you know, like a half year older than watching the Last Jedi. Um, but he I and mean, we've watched uh, most. Well, we've watched almost all the good Clone Wars together, minus that last little bit with Yoda, um, and uh, he really enjoyed it. Um, and he was, you know, uh, again, I mean, like the biggest thing that's happening in our family cinematically is the release of The Incredibles 2 in like a week <laughs> and a half. And we've been, I mean, like that was like the first movie that my son, who's now nine, loved when he was like five. Mm. I mean, it was already out before he was even born. Like, right. um, and we've been eagerly anticipating this for years. Like, it, it's on our calendar. It's been on our <laughs> calendar for years. Um, uh, you know, and so... He again, like I showed him the solo trailer, and he's like, mm. um, "But uh, I said that Eli saw it with his son, and he kind of liked it, and so they were excited to go. And almost from the from the very beginning, like they were enthralled. Hmm. Um, and I and I think that that's just 
partially because of the pace and because very quickly we get from you know uh, dumpy little Corellia yeah. um, to uh, train heist in the Alps with like ninja bikers um, and and all of that stuff was really interesting for them and it also I mean there's a very particular I mean the Star Wars Jedi has a very particular aesthetic um, you know there's not a lot of variation they always wear cloaks they always mm-hmm. have this particular fighting style um, and one of the things that my oldest likes about Clone Wars is like the all the variety of different kinds of people, armor, weapons, and stuff mm-hmm. in there. And I think you have all of that visually interesting stuff in this film, which is why it was really interesting for him. Yeah, I would I would say my I agree with my nine year old um, as well. He uh, I think he connected with it. I mean, I think the using the blasters is still cool yeah. um, and fun. He really got into the Castle Run and understanding the all the details of that and how it worked. Well, and, yeah, and like um, so when um. And so in the Kessel Run, when like when they uh, when they when they get out there in the Maelstrom, and there's like a giant star destroyer, Ethan just looks over at me and is like, "What are they gonna do?" You yeah. know? And and then Han Solo's like, "We're gonna go through there." And he looks over at me like, "You can't do that," you yeah. know? In, in in a sense, like he was totally along for the ride of the craziness of mm-hmm. going into the unknown to do that thing. Yeah. One thing I think they do need to figure out with these standalone films is that opening. Um, I don't know why they don't just do a crawl. Seems logical. But it was fun that um, my son, like, the moment uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away popped up, we just both, like, looked at each other. Like, just that, we get to watch a new Star Wars movie. <laughs> and yeah. it was like, it's starting. But then, you like, he was sort of confused, like, hmm, this isn't the beginning of a Star Wars movie. Like, um, what, what came after that? What came out was the music, you know, um, that comes up. But... Uh, yeah, I think they should come up with something iconic as well uh, for the beginning of that. But overall, I I would think this this seems like a great adventure that kids would would really be into, even without the uh, the Jedi stuff in it. Yeah, and I just to go back to the fan thing for one minute. I mean, I think that there's you know we are ra- we are raising the next generation of Star Wars fans, um, and I think that they uh, in many ways like I watched my son who's nine like approach the world without all this baggage that mm-hmm. the grumpy pants in our like the mantranet has from our <laughs> generation yeah um and in many ways like i just like that's i i, I had that perspective more myself mm. in that like i had a good time it's great you know like got some problems with it it's not perfect but it's really awesome and they're doing this new thing and that's really fun um and uh you know all the haters uh it's just sometimes when i say to him like oh like you know some people say this about the film and he's like mm, i don't really care you know, in a sense that like there's there's a, a level of his perspective which is like why are they why are they so critical of it? Like what do they want it to, like why why do they expect it to be something different than it is? Um, which I find refreshing. It's part of one of the joys of having kids. I also find it funny that even before this film, um, my son has liked the new ones, but he makes like comments sometimes like they're not they're just different than the original trilogy is. They're 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 so they're pretty loud and like they're a lot faster, <laughs> um, hmm. which is unique for, you know, a young child is like, you didn't really, I didn't even really know the original film. I wasn't alive when um, A New Hope came out. Uh, so it's just funny coming from a nine-year-old that can see that. I mean, I think, I mean, this is like just 
crazy shot in the dark. I mean, like the, the way like uh, President like uh, Barack Obama when he was campaigning for president was saying like we don't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican, we care like what you're going to do for us. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a lot of the perspective that my son has and that I kind of have too. Like in in in, a, in, in an internet world in which people like can know all the details about directors and production and all these sorts of things, it's like very easy to have a very tailored opinion about something that is about yourself um but ultimately it's like if it's an enjoyable film it's an enjoyable film right whether it like violates your Mm. you know personal expectations about what's supposed to happen in the production of a star wars film um you know there's just that, that you know that moment when they when you see the first big pan of the train job and i was like this is pretty good you know and there's a couple lines in there where it's like they really spend a lot of time making that dialogue go well, and I'm totally into it. Um, and it doesn't. And I think that, you know, like, and this will. I'll just make this quick. This is kind of like a Ron Howard slash older director bit. Is I just watched Jurassic Park with my kids the other day, and I have this sort of personal schedule of showing them some of the great films from when I was mm-hmm. a kid. Um, the first of which was Goonies, and they were like, it took them like a month of me pushing them to like convince them to watch watch Goonies Mm -hmm. and like once they did from the very opening thing they were utterly enthralled (laughs) and it's the same way with Jurassic Park I mean like in watching Jurassic Park again I was like there are some parts of it that are a little trite Mm -hmm. but like it's a fantastic film Mm -hmm. from beginning to end well directed well shot all this stuff um, and, it, and again, like I had just seen Infinity War and I was like, dear God, like they, you know, like there, there was a time you know, like this Spielberg knows how to make a film, mm-hmm. you know, like there's this generation of folks. You know, I just thought like if they want to have like Ron Howard and Clint Eastwood, like direct the next Star Wars film, <laughs> it'd be tight. Um, but there's this there was this I don't know. There's just this because um, I what I thought when I when I would watch Jurassic Park and look back at it and when I eventually show them like Back to the Future and things like it would be sort of primarily nostalgia like I like mm-hmm. it because I used to like it and because I saw it at a particular time right when in truth um, there's some element of that of the craft yeah um, that true. that you know that is quite good mm-hmm. um, and I think that they uh, you can see that because I mean mm-hmm. whether it's um, in an older film or a newer film in some sense like that's more important to us older folks mm. and not really important to them yeah um and you know the those kids all they see is like is the story good like are right. these people interesting yeah, like yeah. you know you know what's going on um and from that and you know from that perspective there's yeah there's i mean go ahead i think uh the other sad thing about this film not doing well is uh when i heard about like ron howard taking over and saw some of like how nice the film looks too. Yeah. That this world, and I think he is pretty uh, accomplished director. That I was kind of like, I hope that he now gets a chance to do like his own Star Wars film from the beginning. Yeah. Like, can you give him a project that he can, you know, start out um, from the ground up and build up? I think that would be uh, interesting. I think he would handle that well. Um, and he's he's play, kind of played in the Lucasfilm world for a while. Um, had a connection to George Lucas. And it came out when this film that George Lucas offered him directing episode one, and he turned it down, um, saying that he wasn't ready for it. But, yeah, that that probably would have been a good choice even back then. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. My one takeaway from this whole conversation really is um, I am convinced, I don't know if both of you are, that this movie will be recouped Hmm. that people will watch it yeah. en masse 
in big numbers. Uh, it could be one of the most, when Disney releases or produces or creates their streaming service, this will be one that will be in the rotation. Hmm. And it will, it will get its day in the Court of Appeals. It definitely will and will win in that court, it seems to me. There's just no reason to think that it will be, that it's, it's, it's um, reputation now as the kind of pariah film of the franchise. That mm. uh, There's no way that this is going to hold. If, it, if Star Wars, now it's not unthinkable, and this, this is worth speculating, speculating about as well, it's not unthinkable that the next movie doesn't do as well either. Yeah. It's possible that, you know, we, we have to investigate all the possibilities. It's possible that Star Wars begins to teeter a little bit at the box office. This is not unthinkable. Mm -hmm. Not every franchise can last forever, despite, you know, what Marvel has been able to pull off, or James Bond, for that matter. Um, but it is not unthinkable. And if that happens, if Star Wars does begin to teeter at the box office... Some people will look back at this movie as being an entertaining one, but the one that began the fall right. in one or another. Yeah, that's which too, that's too bad. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the um, I have complete confidence in Ryan Johnson for his trilogy that we know nothing about virtually, but I think they will have work to do there to uh, bring the audience into brand new characters that they will have to invest in. Because I think people are invested in ultimately you know, the character of Rey and um, Finn and Kylo Ren. Um, and we'll see, ultimately, because Last Jedi was sort of a split with audiences, too. But I think that will be a big job in... And they've announced another new trilogy as well um, with Game of Thrones writers. But, you know, that's going to be the real goal of how can we create new iconic characters that um, the audience won't tire of the Star Wars films being released yeah, all the time. Yeah, I mean... Um, what I would hope is that they look at Solo and see what worked in it was um, the employment of a writer or a team of writers that was led by someone who has a personal connection to the, to the, to the original trilogy and the zeitgeist of um, the original Star Wars. And they chose a director who is, it has perennial quality, mm. you know, and, you know, and like, which also means that he's old. But I, I think that there's... Um, I, I like the, the the idea of innovation with a lot of things. I like these younger mm -hmm. directors, um, but they're, I think if they want to to manage something as big as the Star Wars universe or as big ultimately as the Marvel Cinematic Universe as they define it, they're going to need um, people with more seasoned talent mm -hmm. in, in shaping things. Regardless of what else happens, I think what they learned from this film and its reception is there are they can't just rely at least anymore um, on like the cachet nostalgia from the original. Mm. They can't just, I think they probably yeah. had the idea that they could make, you know, the hardest choice about uh, making the Han Solo movie successful was choosing Han Solo. Right. Um, and I think that they realized that that's, maybe they've reached the end of that mm -hmm. or that maybe it wasn't a good idea in the first place, but the first three films seem to, you know, like Star Wars, we'll go see it. And this seemed to be the first one that, like, I think it, it has to be that a lot of those folks, like you said, were like, eh, I'll skip it. Um, and they just can't afford to do that right. um, when you have production uh, numbers as high as they do. Yeah. And the most expensive Star Wars movie ever made, yeah. apparently, with this one. Yeah. They can't afford to do any of this in an era where Disney is effectively competing with itself. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. Um, so I think we're going to wrap up there, but uh, thank you, Colin, for being on the show again. It's always a great discussion um, that we get to have. Um, and well, I, hope- I enjoy it as much as you do. <laughs> Good. Good. And hopefully we get some more people to go out and see Solo, a Star Wars story. Go see it. Yeah. Full endorsement. Yes, yes. So thanks for listening. This has been Extra Textual, and we'll talk more next time.